0: evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away Humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. One of the things that I did this week in getting ready for this morning was I kind of went through the New Testament and I looked up every place that the word uh, resurrection was used. I looked up every place that the word raised was used, risen was used. And one of the things that I found out was that it's intensely practical. Wherever it talks about resurrection, it's very common for it to be dealing with an issue in life that the people that he was writing to were dealing with at that time. You know, we tend to study it in more of a a doctrinal stance, and and that's good because it is a a doctrine. This is something that we believe. We have reasons to believe it. It has an impact on our life. Uh, A lot of the passages that deal with it in Scripture are dealing with it kind of in a pastoral sense. In other words, here you're struggling with this. You know, let me tell you about something that'll help you in your struggle with that, and it's the resurrection that's going to help you with this in your understanding that'll give you the, the power to overcome this. And that makes sense because even Philippians talks about our ability to be able to experience that resurrection power of Christ. And that's an amazing power that God would raise somebody from the dead. That's the power over life and death. That is an amazing power that is available to us. Some of the places that we see that connection is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19. The Apostle Paul is talking about the resurrection and he's actually kind of doing it from a doctrinal position, because there are people who are saying, ah, there's, there's no resurrection. And he's saying, wait a minute, if there's no resurrection, then not even Christ is raised. And so he's kind of dealing with it from a doctrinal perspective or theological perspective, but it has very practical results. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now he's referring to the fact that they've been being persecuted, they've been being beaten and chased down, hunted by people to stop them from teaching about the resurrection. He said, you know what, not only that, uh, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then we're wasting our time because we're teaching people that Christ is risen from the dead. And if there is no resurrection from the dead, then that means your faith is futile. Our preaching is, is in vain. Uh, it's just a big waste of time. In fact, we're even found to be liars. We're misrepresenting Christ if we say He's resurrected when He hasn't. And so he says, really, when you look at us, look at all the suffering that we're going through to teach this. We should be pitied above all people. And it's all for nothing, he's saying, if there is no resurrection. And then he compounds that in verse 32. He says, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus? There's a big riot caused over him in Ephesus. And he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Where we get purpose and value and meaning in life is because there is a resurrection. Because there's a resurrection, it means there's a whole future. Which means that everything that you do now and say now and think now has eternal implications. It's not just impacting right now. It's impacting an eternity, your eternity, other people's eternity that you influence. You are of eternal significance. The Apostle Paul says, look, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then what should be our philosophy of life? Life is short. Enjoy it. Live it up. However you can enjoy it, enjoy it as much as you can, And because you're just going to die anyway and then it's all over. You wonder where America is getting some of our mindset today. That's where it's from. Life is short. Live it up. Take it while you can get it. You know what? Christianity is a very different mindset. This life may be short, but our life goes on. And so everything that we do in this life has eternal consequences, eternal impact. And so it's live actually for then, not for now. Not, don't live for the dot that you're in right now. Live for the line that goes on for eternity because that's your real life. That's what Jesus told us to do. He said, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. Lay up your treasures in heaven. Send it on ahead. That would make no sense at all if there was no ahead to go to. And so the resurrection becomes intensely practical. It changes the whole way that you look at life. At the very end of the chapter, in verse 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable. Be solid in your faith. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Remember he said earlier, if there's no resurrection, our labor is all in vain. All our work is for nothing. If there is a resurrection, then it all counts. It's all valuable. The resurrection makes everything make sense. Jesus Christ is declared to be the Son of God with power through the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is true, proving that He is the Son of God, proving that there is a God, proving that we were all created and we're here for a reason. And so we have purpose and value and dignity. And so the the resurrection has practical implications. You know, we find the same thing in Romans chapter 6. The end of Romans chapter 5 is dealing with grace. The grace of God by which we are saved. We didn't deserve to be saved. God sent His Son to save us because He is just a giving and a gracious God. But he finishes chapter 5 by saying wherever sin abounded, grace like superabounded." So in other words, you can't out-sin the grace of God. Uh, he recognizes that some people then are going to come to the conclusion that, well, if we're all saved by grace... And God has so much grace that no matter how many sins you've committed, God can still forgive you if you repent and put your faith in Christ. Well, then why not just keep going on in sin? Why Why stop sinning? And that's what he addresses in chapter 6 and verses 1 through 5. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. So you see, these people are struggling with, well, why battle sin in our life? Maybe we should just give in and go ahead and live in sin if we're going to be delivered out of it anyway, if there's plenty of grace. And the Apostle Paul says, absolutely not. Having put your faith in Christ, how could you go on and live in sin? That would be against everything that you just believed in. He brings up their baptism, which also is interestingly very often connected in the passages dealing with the resurrection. And that makes sense because our baptism is a picture of the resurrection. When we're put under the water, it's a picture of Jesus dying and being buried. And when we come back up, it's a picture of Jesus rising again from the dead. So we're picturing Christ's burial and resurrection from the dead. And we're saying we also are dead to our sins and alive unto God. And so now we're going to walk in this newness of life. He's saying look you can't go on living in sin because you know what now you're dead to your sin you're alive to God Jesus died for you and then rose again from the dead he died for your sin so now you are dead to your sin and then you know what just like you're united with him in his death you also will be united with him in his resurrection so this unity that you have with Christ answers the question of should i just continue to living in sin can you continue to live in sin when you're united with Christ not really They're completely contradictory. And so, again, practical situation. What is my relationship to my past sins and present sins? And he answers it with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter does the same thing. In 1 Peter chapter 3, what he's dealing with in this passage is suffering. The early church was being persecuted and they're experiencing some suffering. I put my trust in Christ and now my life is harder. How do I deal with this persecution? And he basically writes to him, and he says, look, none of us should ever be in a place where we get in trouble for doing wrong. But he says, you know what, sometimes we find ourselves in trouble for doing right. Well, the Apostle Peter gives him some encouragement, and his encouragement is, for Christ also suffered for sins, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. The suffering that you're going through, He's encouraging them. Follow the example of Christ. Christ was a righteous person. He didn't do anything unrighteous or wrong. And He suffered. And so hang in there. Follow His example. Be strong. Endure that suffering. He talks about Christ being put to death in the flesh. And made alive in the Spirit. And then it talks about Him going and speaking to these prisoners. What I think it is, it says that He went and spoke to the spirits in prison. The Bible talks about demons being, some demons are loose on the earth and doing Satan's bidding. Others are in chains. Well, if you look at Genesis, back in the days of Noah, because God says these are beings that did wrong in the days of Noah. When God was being patient. God was being patient, waiting for people to repent while Noah built the ark. They didn't repent, and so the flood came. Well, during that time it says the sons of God, which is usually a term for angels, the sons of God went into the daughters of men, and they bore children. And so I think that that's what it's referring to. So Peter is saying that Jesus, when He died on the cross, where did His Spirit go? Right, His body was dead and laying in the grave. Where is the Spirit of Jesus? Jesus' Spirit, apparently He went and says He spoke to these prisoners. He, I don't know if He preached the Gospel or what He did to these, these ones in captivity, but uh, that's what He did. He spoke to these prisoners. Now it says, while the eight during the flood were carried safely through the flood. That's dealing with the eight that were in the ark. Because you have Noah and his wife, and then they had three sons, and then they had three wives of their sons. So there were eight people in the ark, and they were carried along safely. Now that gets us up to this next part. He says, Baptism, which corresponds to this... Corresponds to what? Corresponds to those people being saved through the water. And so he says, Baptism corresponds to that. You realize in the Old Testament, there were things that pictured our salvation that we would experience. And pictured even our baptism in there. A couple places that the New Testament points back to the Old Testament are one in the flood. Right here, Peter points back to the flood and says, look, God came in judgment and wrath and He destroyed the world, but He kept these people safe through water. God saved him through the water with the ark. Another place is in the Red Sea. God delivered Israel from Egypt and Pharaoh is chasing after them and God parts the, the Red Sea and Israel crosses on dry land and then Pharaoh goes in after them and God has the water come back and it destroys Pharaoh's army and they get safely to the other side. The Bible also looks at that event and refers to it as a baptism. And so we see Israel getting delivered from Pharaoh, from death, through the waters of the Red Sea. We see Noah and his family getting delivered from death through the waters of the flood. And we see us today getting delivered from the death that comes from our sin through the waters of baptism. And that's why he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, not the process of the washing and the symbolism but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. In other words, it's not the act of baptism itself that saves you, it is the faith that is behind the act of baptism. That is what saves you. And you know what, for a long time we've argued as Christians that you baptism is not necessary for salvation, but it pictures salvation. And that is absolutely true, but we go too far. We go too far when we make it a small thing. Because it is a huge step and supposed to be the first step of obedience when somebody puts their faith in Christ that we follow the Lord in believer's baptism so closely linked to our salvation that He can use words like it's this baptism that saves you. He can use one in place of the other. It's called a metonym because they're so closely related. And so He says it's through that baptism. now. And how does that happen? He says through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. And so again, brings out that position of Christ today. He's sitting at the right hand of God. The right hand is the hand of power. Uh, when somebody says, that's my right hand man, it means that he could be in my place, right? He's, he's the one accomplishing my deeds. That's what he's referring to. And so these people were dealing with suffering and they say, how do we deal with this suffering? And the Apostle says, look, Jesus also suffered. He was righteous, but He suffered. For the unrighteous, so that He could bring us to God. You've been baptized into Him. Where's Jesus now? He's at the right hand of God. Was He defeated? Absolutely not. He's empowered. And He's saying, look, you have the same thing. You have the same future. You're going to face the resurrection from the dead. You can endure this suffering because this life isn't all there is. If this life was all there is, then there's no reason to endure suffering. Shake it at any cost because this is short. You've got to get on with living. But this life isn't all there is. In fact, Peter ends it or kind of continues it in chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. You see, the resurrection and the truth of the resurrection was supposed to shape the way that they think. It's supposed to shape the way that we think about our service for God in 1 Corinthians 15. It's supposed to shape the way that we think about our sin in Romans chapter 6. It's supposed to shape the way that we think about our suffering in First Peter chapter 3. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is intensely practical. And it, it's just logical. In fact, that's what I'm going to call it this morning. i want to call it resurrection logic. Because it's just logical. If there is a resurrection from the dead, then everything changes. You know what? The day I put my faith in Christ, everything changed for me. And I knew it because now all of a sudden everything made sense. And that's what we're looking at today is this resurrection logic. Well, we find this in in Colossians chapter 3. I want to point out to us three elements of this resurrection logic. The first one is education. It takes some education to get us to the point where we see the logic of the resurrection. But also it enhances our education as we go forward from there. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, "...if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God." Notice verse 2, "...set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God." And the reason for that, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. And why is that the case? Because if then you have been raised with Christ... If you understand this resurrection, he says, take your mind, and this is what education does. Education takes your mind and it gets you to focus on certain subjects. That's what he's saying here. He says, look, we need to set our minds on things that are above. Why? Because it's not all about the things that are below. Well, we need to get a better understanding of the context of Colossians. The Apostle Paul is worried about these people. He's worried about them being led astray, being duped by some false teaching. A bad education, so to speak. So you notice what the Apostle Paul wants for these people. He says, look, I want you guys to be knit together. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to experience the love that you get in the brotherhood. Where does that come from? It comes from the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Now, what is God's mystery? God's mystery is Christ, but He's worried. What's He worried about? The very last part of that. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. In other words, he says there's people out there that are going to try to talk you out of this. There's people out there that are going to try to give you a different understanding that is not a good understanding. In fact, in verse 8, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You know, we need to grow in a good way in our understanding of the Word of God, our understanding of what's been accomplished for us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we come here regularly and devote ourselves to these things. In chapter 3, he hints back at this idea of education as well. In verse 10, it says that we have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. And in verse 16 of chapter 3 also, he says, "...let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom." That's where we are. We need Christ and Him only. Because He's who died for us. He's who rose again. He's who empowers us to live that resurrected life. How do we understand that to begin with? Through this education that we get from the Word of God. The Word of letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. How do we then continue in that and grow in that? Through allowing the Word of Christ to dwell in us richly. By increasing in our knowledge and understanding of who God is. But then secondly, not only is the element of resurrection logic education, it's also separation. Because he goes on from here in chapter 3 to deal with uh, our life in relationship to our sins. He says, put to death, therefore, in verse 5, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Um, I think it's pretty self-explanatory and we don't really have time to go through the list. Sexual immorality is the loosest uh, term in, in the Greek language. It just meant basically any sexual activity outside the perimeters of marriage. Covetousness, he identifies as idolatry. Whenever we give something else first place in our life, we make that our God. So when we want other things that we don't have or a lifestyle that we don't have, we're really saying to God, you know what, you haven't done it good enough, God, you haven't met our needs the way He should. And so we make that thing, or that lifestyle, or whatever it is, we make that a God. But then he goes on from there. He says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming in these. You too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. He says, anger, wrath, and malice. That kind, of, kind of describes the ugliness that is inside of us, right? Those are all things that come from inside. Those anger, wrath, and malice, those are feelings. Those are thoughts. They turn into slander, obscene talk, and lying to one another. And so he says, "Look, we need to take all that stuff and put it off. We need to we need to get rid of that stuff." Same thing he said in Romans chapter six. That's where he went with them in verses six to eleven. Says we know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. You know, people often when they sin, they think that they're exercising their freedom. I just do what I want. Yeah, No, that's because what you want is corrupt. And your nature is enslaved to sin. That's why you want to do that. But Jesus Christ died for us to deliver us from that bondage that we have in sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. You also must, now notice it's a thought word again, consider, think, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We need to consider ourselves dead to sin. We need to make that separation. Look, if you put your faith in Christ then you're now in Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Which means there's a whole host of things, both inside of you and that came out of your mouth and were actions that you participated in physically that are no longer fitting in your life. And you need to separate from those things. We need to put off. He has the old man, our sinfulness, and the new man, this righteousness in Christ. He says you've got to put off that old man. Get rid of it. It's like changing a pair of clothes. Take off the work clothes. Put on the good clothes. Move on from this. Now notice, it's very serious. It's very serious. It talks about the wrath of God on account of these things. These things that we've been living in. These things that we've been used to. Uh, these things that don't look quite as bad to us because, well, everybody's doing it. Well, you know what? By the wrath of God is coming on people because of these things. These are no light issues. There's no such thing as a small sin or a light issue. Remember, Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden for eating one apple that they weren't supposed to. It's not a light deal. It's a big deal. This kind of thing, one of your sins will keep you out of heaven. I don't care if you pick the smallest one. Even the sin that just abides in you keeps you out of heaven. This is a big deal. And that's exactly why God sent Christ to deliver us. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he recognizes how big a deal it is in verses 9 through 11. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He gives a whole great big list of things and he says, look, none of these people, the unrighteous, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sin is a big deal. I saw a statement recently where somebody talked about open marriage and said they'd heard about some Christians being okay with open marriage. They said, what is their justification? Where is it in the Bible? What's their argument for being okay with open marriage? And I, I usually don't respond to much on Facebook, but I responded to that. And I said, I don't care what they say. They're not a Christian if they're okay with open marriage. Being a Christian is not just calling yourself Christ. It's like being a little Christ. You have to follow Him. It's a belief of faith that changes your life and changes the way you see things. And nobody that's been convicted by the Holy Spirit of their sin and repented of their sin and turned to Christ is okay with something as hideous as open marriage. It confronts everything about Christianity. And this, this list that he holds up, he says, look, I don't care what you call yourself. If you can describe yourself as one of these, you see this in your life, then you are not a Christian. You are not part of the kingdom. Now, the great part of that is, what does he say right after that? And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And you know, that's that's just absolutely awesome. Because the fact of the matter is, is everybody in here that, that has put their faith in Christ will acknowledge that such was us. This was us. But we repented of our sins and we came to faith in Christ and He took us and He cleaned us and He sanctifies us and He Gives us a new life, an eternal life. And that's an awesome change. That's a change that is there because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This separation, not only is it serious, it's universal. He tells us that, that we all used to walk this way, we all used to walk in these sins, this anger and malice, and we all, we've all struggled with these things, and so it's universal. It's not just some, it's everybody. But then lastly, the third element of resurrection logic is sanctification. Because just as He talked about taking off our old man, now He talks about putting on a new man. Putting on that righteousness of Christ. Christ traded us. On that cross, He took our sin upon Him and He gave His righteousness to us. So we put our faith in Him. We get His righteousness. And now we just got to live like it. He goes on in, in that chapter beginning in verse 10 of chapter 3. It says, "...and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator." In verse 12, he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness. Boy, that's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Especially after you just got done thinking about the anger and the malice. (laughs) He says instead you can have humility and meekness, kindness compassionate hearts, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Let the righteousness of Christ flow through your life. He died for your sin. You die to your sin. He rose to give you life. Now, live that life, that new life in Him. Now, the word sanctification means to be set apart. And it can have kind of both aspects included in that one word. Right? There's, a, there's always things you need to get rid of and things you need to acquire, things that you need to live out. And so the word itself actually can be used to describe both the positive and the negative side of what we're talking about. But in the sense I'm using it today, I'm kind of focusing just on the positive. Because we already talked about the negative. That had to do with separation. So the three elements of resurrection logic. One is an education. We need to understand. We need to know the resurrection, understand the resurrection. It's intensely practical in our life. The apostles could take it and say, your acts of service, are you spending your time in vain or is it a very worthwhile investment? The answer to that is found in the resurrection. What about your sin? Do you continue to live in sin or do you separate yourself from it? The answer to that is found in the resurrection. What about your suffering that you're going through? Do you endure hardships? Do you throw a fit? How do you deal with that? The answer to that is found in the resurrection. There's just a logical connection. If there's a resurrection, it means life goes on forever. changes everything. In order to participate in that well, we need an education. It involves a separation and it involves sanctification, that positive growth in our relationship with God. I think he summarized it very well in verse 17 right at the end of the passage. It says, In whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him.